how science has framed this recently is really cool. It's called it weird science. And the original paper that spoke about this said, you know, the most of the world isn't weird. This is the Future in the Humanities podcast, and I'm Andy Lemassou. In this series produced by humans, uh, for humans, intrigued by humanity, we'll be exploring how human society and culture are evolving in Africa's increasingly fast-paced and take-forward reality. Now, this show features the voices of some of the brightest minds at Wits University's humanities faculty. Now, these are humans who are tackling fundamental questions related to the role and future of the study of the humanities. But they also share space with everyday Africans who, frankly, should be at the heart of any attempt to make sense of the human experience. We're calling this episode Touching Brains. It features the voices of neuroscientist Sahba Nomvula Besherati and psychologist slash anthropologist slash anatomist Victoria Mary Elizabeth Williams. Now, these two women have found the humanities an appropriate space to collaborate on a study focused on the sense of touch. It's a study that aims to better understand both how the brain works and perhaps, as importantly, how humans function. A brain is a brain is a brain is a brain, or is it? So I would think about neuroscience 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, where we were after an objective search for knowledge, and, you know, you look at the brain being a brain, and it didn't matter, you know, where that brain came from or how it developed, and the same thing with behavior. But that is a very outdated way of looking at behavior and the brain and the dynamic interaction between them, because we know that we are shaped by our environment. Even our genes are shaped by our environment, but the, with them, the discovery of epigenetics, right? It's always a dynamic relationship between the brain the biology or the biological aspects of the self and the self in the world <laughs> and the self over the life course, so so developing. So I'd like to think that our brains are socially modulated and they're moved and influenced by our emotions. So a bridge now, young world, between <laughs> neuroscience and the humanities. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm a psychologist, so I'm actually based in the humanities. My background's in the humanities. Not all psychologists are. Sometimes they come from even a commerce background, but more from a science background. But I think in South Africa, it's really unique that psychology is actually based in the humanities. And um, neuroscience itself is a multidisciplinary field. You can come from an engineering background, a computer science background, from anatomy, from physics, um, and also from psychology. And I think psychology itself and psychology based in the humanities brings such an important influence in understanding the brain because what are we without our environment? And that's what the humanities is. It studies people. And a brain isn't a brain if it's not in a body. Right. <laughs> the brain is in a body. It experiences the world. It, it It's socialized as well. That's what I mean by the social modulation of things. It's, um, it is an organ, of course, but the brain is a unique organ in the human body because it interacts with its environment. And I think that's it's, it's really profound how um, the humanities can can tell us more about this this organ, <laughs> about right. biology, yeah. Right. And a way many of us explore the world mm. uh, or discover the world is through touch. And yet 
um, often the link between touch and the brain isn't explored as popularly mm. as say sight and hearing yeah, and memory, and, memory and taste yeah. <laughs> right i mean with, with all Actually, these taste, cooking shows yeah, yeah with all these cooking yeah, shows that's look, true. look how it's that's true. exploded okay. but touch touch is a thing mm. so lead me into a world most people don't think about mm. w- when it comes to the link between the brain its environment and of course touch as mm. a, as as a means to explore that environment yeah. so let, let's embrace the humanities and go back to philosophy <laughs> back 100 years to Descartes where i think therefore i am and here we have this classic kind of disassociation between you know cognition and the body and this is i think why touch which is so intricate to everything we do. And it's been around forever, as long as Descartes. But there is this disconnection between the body and how we think, and the brain, which it was often linked together. Mm. Um, And I think there's been a revolution in the sciences towards an embodied way of understanding how we think and mental processes and the brain. (laughs) And um, touch is about that, right? So it's about our body. It's about knowing ourselves through our body. And recently there's been, uh, again, a a really great discovery in terms of specific fibers in your skin that relate to um, slow velocity stroking. So really slow touch, even though this has been, it's socialized, it's something that's been with us. And there's been, there were early experiments done by Harlow with monkeys that looked at, you know, do you want to be cuddled by a a wire um, mother that has, you know, soft skin or would you like milk? And they wanted to be cuddled oh. more than they actually wanted milk, which Touch is really interesting. Food. Touch over food. Hmm. You know, there there's a need for it. But only recently did they find these specific fibers in our skin that activate what's known as affective touch. So right. it's an emotional response that you actually find it pleasant, that it has physiological markers. But what's really interesting is, so how is then this socialized? So so does it is it the same for everyone? Does it change for everyone? This is my question whether my notions about touch are in fact shaped by the world I was born to or shaped by a world I, I I was exposed to yeah. via television and okay. that was produced by Hollywood. Mm. If we now accept that it, it actually does matter to take into account where the brain is forming and the influences yeah. upon it. Yeah. Um, I wonder what your interest is in in, in fleshing out more fully uh, a sense of, you know, what touch means and perhaps how it's experienced within the context of Africa, yeah. South Africa, yeah. Johannesburg, yeah. maybe other places on the continent. I think that's huge. Yeah, that's such an important question. So, um, so I'm also a part of um, a lab, <laughs> if you can say a neuroscience lab called Vitz Neural, um, which literally stands for Neuroscience Research Lab. And that's the aim of our lab is really to look at neuroscience research in the South African context. Um, because this is wholly neglected in the world <laughs> in many ways is is because many times, like I said, there's this, I think there's a misunderstanding that things like the brain, it doesn't matter who you're studying it in. Um, and we neglect these really essential environmental influences. So there's a huge bias in sciences towards looking at things, including affective touch and social touch in the global north. And what, how science has framed this recently is really cool. It's being, it's called it weird science. So Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic countries. And, um, you know, 
the the original paper that spoke about this said, you know, the most of the world isn't weird. And it's true. The majority of the population is in the global south. And, you know, we neglect to look at um, these really important questions around, you know, emotion, self-awareness, body awareness, consciousness, without looking at the context that we conduct the research in. And that's why it's really an exciting time to be a researcher in non-weird settings, especially in places like South Africa, where we have, you know, a multilingual, multicultural society. We have so much to offer the neuroscience world. And um, to, in understanding these really complicated processes. So that's one thing that we're looking at in terms of the study of affective touch, which is this specialized kind of physiological touch that I was speaking to. But you can also look at it a little bit more broadly. So from affective touch, you can look at things like affiliative touch, which is, you know, goes back to touch in the early life course, right? So maternal right. touch, especially because, you know, early childhood development, you know, the first thousand days of life from the period of conception to two, it's huge. Your brain is like really rapidly evolving. It's only paralleled in adolescence, actually, where you have a concept of neural pruning, where you're solidifying pathways. And, you know, these are really critical developmental periods where things like touch in a variety of neuroscience research is starting to be really, really important. <laughs> and it actually can modulate things like resilience later on in life, right? Which is important in the times, in the pandemic times that we're living in. Yeah. Um, and what we've been looking at is the multicultural influences of touch. So although, you know, there is a physiological measure to touch, we also know, like I said before, it's socially modulated. Right. You know, so your experiences of touch, if it was through Hollywood and media, if it was through, you know, your your how much your parents were in contact with you physically, you know, it influences also this physiological experience. So what you see as being pleasurable or not, <laughs> what you see is, you know, actually um, um, even the fibers that are activated, it differs, right? Depending right. on your environmental experiences. So that's quite exciting for the first time, as far as I know in the literature, we're really looking at these, um, th these multicultural differences on things like physiological aspects of touch um, with collaborators in the UK as well. Uh, and it's, uh, and I'm hoping it, it'll shed some light on these um important environmental influences that you've been speaking to. So, Sahba's not working on this alone. She's partnered with Victoria Mary Elizabeth Williams, Victoria from here on in, who, as I said earlier, has an academic background in psychology, anthropology, and anatomy. One of the scholastic rabbit holes she's traveled down at some point in her career is archaeology. And I just wanted to know how all these interests set her up for a seemingly unlikely collaboration with Sahba on a lab-based study about the brain based in the humanities. Archaeology, lots of touching, lots of feeling, lots of digging. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an obvious connection between touch and, and, and what we can learn from archaeology um, about touch in the brain? When one excavates, it is very much a sensory experience. You know, you've got your fingers in the dirt. Um, it's not as glamorous as everyone likes to make out. It's not Indiana Jones, you know. No. But in terms of the experience, like from the tactile experience, it is very therapeutic. So you have a really diverse background um, academically. It tells me you're a curious person. But it, it also tells me that you probably see connections in places where other people might not. So give me a sense of how things you've studied in the past are proving useful and how you're drawing on that to advance work you're doing in the area of touch. So I first started in the humanities, actually. So my background is essentially humanities. So right. <laughs> I started... In 
did anthropology and psychology. And I was fascinated to like understand the brain, more about the brain. How does the brain work? How does it function? From there, I thought, okay, well, I don't understand the anatomy very well. So let me go and study anatomy at medical school for a PhD. <laughs> so I had a master's in anthropology and I went to the medical school at WITS and I asked to do a brain anatomy, comparative neuroscience, looking at differences between ape brains and human brains and trying to see are there differences, you know, between us and, and non-human apes, you know. So I was fascinated to bring the anthropology, which is the understanding of cultures and, you know, how our environment influences our brains and integrating that with the anatomy, with understanding how our brains are shaped by our environment. So the anatomical effects of that kind of interaction and engagement with our environment and bringing that together to have like a more holistic understanding of the human brain from the environment, the anatomy, um, evolutionary wise, and um, also just looking at differences in behavior. And I think these are incredibly valuable things to bring together to try to understand touch, you know, especially in a South African context, you know, and because we are so rich in different cultures and we really are, um, you know, it's a multicultural society. We have lots of different cultural groups and that's what really puts South Africa, in my opinion, <laughs> above a lot of other countries. Right. So, about the lab we've mentioned. So, our neuroscience lab, I walked through here, is meant to be in there. Okay. But now there's construction happening in Sahba and Victoria are spending quite a bit of time working at the School of Human and Community Development's Neuroscience Research Lab, Vitz Neuro. I was pretty keen to get a sense, excuse the pun, of all the touching they're getting up to. What we hadn't talked about yet is this idea of interception. So you're being aware of your internal bodily states. And so we're often aware of our external bodily states through different senses like vision, like sound, like taste. But with interception, you have to focus on inside your body. So one way to try to do that is by closing your eyes because you're not getting visual feedback. So can I put this on? Okay, it's a sleeping mask. You have my express permission. So I'm just gonna ask for your... Ouch! Okay. Oh, <laughs> I really got scared. Okay, I'm going to ask for your right arm. So it's also important on if where you touch. So I can touch on your glabrous skin, so non-hairy, on the palm. But I'm going to be looking at your forearm. And actually, you don't have to close your eyes yet. You can oh, see. Okay. I'm just going to measure a little bit, if that's okay. So see, it's I'm actually. I'm that committed. I don't even need the blindfold. No, um, yeah. I'm just going to measure a little bit so I also know exactly where to touch you to get you the real kind of... Because the parameters of touch are quite important in terms of where, and also how fast, so. So what's happening right now is, Saba has a ruler Very scientific. Out, <laughs> a ruler out marking parts of my forearm, which uh, makes it so that you're touching very specific places. Mm -hmm. And I can control the speed. So remember, velocity is important, right? When you're trying to get you know, these physiological measurements, which later you can actually connect to the EEG. So you can see, all right, 
depending on how fast or how slow I'm, I'm stroking you with this brush, so this is a cosmetic brush right now, that is, um, has good fibers to kind of activate the kind of sensory responses that we want, we can see, so what's happening in the brain? So I'm gonna take your subjective response, so that's called self-report, and then later on in the actual studies, we'll also be taking the brain measurements. So it's actually what's going on in the brain, and it's really exciting that you can look at both of them. And is it important to know, for instance, that I'm male, that I was born in Zimbabwe, mm. that I'm black? It's a great question. I think traditionally they'd say no. You know, you just kind of get like a, a, a population. And, you know, before you wouldn't even think about that in science. Now it's a really big thing. So to publish in big journals like Nature, they want to make sure it's a representative population across social economic status, across, you know, like racial diversity even, which is quite hard, across age. So what do we do as psychologists? We have student participants. And then you don't really, you know, get to it, especially if, if you look at, you know, environmental influences, it's very different for, you know, an 18-year-old student coming to WITS than for, you know, an 80-year-old person that's never gone to university. So you do try to look at that. And I think in our studies, we will definitely be looking at um, your demographic data. So, you, you know, you, you do different kinds of statistical analyses with things like covariates or to kind of account for things like gender differences, differences in culture. Um, and then, of course, we'll also have questionnaires that look at your experience of touch over the life course. And we can look at that as well. So lots of data. What I'm doing now is called a psychophysiological experiment. So this is an experiment in itself and um, right now I'll give you different conditions but if this was a real experiment I would have that carefully controlled so there'd be the same amount of conditions and so you can compare things well and then we also have neuroimaging so the brain imaging data which is exciting so and that's what really makes good science I think is having a good you know, representative sample, of course, but then also having different methodologies, right? So you have different kinds of measures that you're looking at. So can you actually feel I right actually now? Can, okay, you can feel. It's not hurtful. It's not hurtful. In the least. I hope it's actually pleasurable. It is actually it's quite nice. pleasurable. Okay. Yes. From a rating scale, from zero to five, mm -hmm. so zero being not pleasant at all, mm -hmm. and five being as pleasant as possible, mm -hmm. tell me how pleasant was the touch? So now I'm actually stroking him in different velocities right now. How pleasant was the touch? It's actually uh, three and a half, three and a half. How pleasant was the touch? Four. How pleasant was the touch? One. Okay. So I would keep going, and you would do this for quite a while with right. the different kind of velocities and different kind of blocks, as we call them. It depends where on my arm. Ah, it's interesting. It. Hey, it the dorsal of the... Uh, yeah. It, de so, it depended yeah. where on my arm, and it also depended the pressure you applied. Yes. There's different responses, there's individual differences, that's how you do the top of the arm, you do the bottom of the arm, and whenever you're doing some kind of an interceptive task, and it's still quite debated, how do you measure this? How do you measure internal bodily feelings? The heartbeat detection task is seen as the gold standard, but I'm hoping affective touch will be seen as one. I'd like to see myself as a social neuroscientist, so you're looking at social experiences in the brain, and there's always, you, I think we need to acknowledge this, that a lot of experimental methods in neuroscience is reductionist in nature, so we need to also think of more ecologically valid experiments that really account for like the, 
the complexity and the environment. And one way to do this, it's not great because it's not an experiment, but when you do use questionnaire methods, you are looking at, you know, different exposures. It does help, right? So I'll still you know, give you a, a touch questionnaire about, you know, your experiences of touch of the middle ice core. So I'll have some inclination in terms of like your outside experience with things, but it is a huge problem to bring it in the lab. So we need to put on our social psychology hats and think about um, how we how we can make these like really cool experiences a little bit more ecologically valid. Yeah. Awesome. All right. What has surprised you so far? You understand aspects of, you know, the the cultural dynamics of a place like South Africa, and you both understand that as well as how the brain works. And um, have there been any surprises? I definitely think uh, when one starts factoring in things like how does culture, how does one's environment impact on the brain, we definitely see that. It does, you know, it has to because that's our environment, you know, that's where we learn to socialize, that's where we engage with other people in our society. So it definitely impacts on our brains and the way we view the world. So is that something that was validated? Is that a, a sensibility that you, you've acquired or observed in your studies that is now being reaffirmed? Definitely reaffirmed, most definitely, yes. Yeah. And so what's most commonly misunderstood, do you think? about touch the brain culture? So I think something that I find fascinating in terms of touch and different cultures is to actually see that although we are very different culturally from one another and, they, you know, culture does play a big role, there also are similarities, you know, across cultural groups. Like in terms of touch, uh, what we find is touch seems to be very important with intimate social relationships, and that's across cultures. So that's fascinating, I find fascinating, that um, we really do want to feel connected to our partners, to our, to our children. You know, it's a very important way of bonding with our children and feeling um, engaged with, with our partner. And in terms of, you know, perhaps differences across cultural groups, it's fascinating to actually realize that it's also not just culture that plays a role, it's also one's environment, like things like temperature can play a big role in physical touch. So we find um, in different parts of the world, depending on where you're based, people that are in sort of hotter climates tend to interestingly be more comfortable with physical touch than in colder climates. So perhaps that explains some of why uh, people in the UK are a bit adverse to touch, physical touch. And uh, we also find things like age plays a role. So younger people are more comfortable engaging in physical touch, which is interesting. Uh, that's what the re research shows. And um, also things like places where there's been like a history of parasites or in our case, a pandemic. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, that definitely impacts on touch because people are now more apprehensive and they, they're viewing, uh, there's almost like this negative association with touch now right. um, as a result. Sakhba reckons the opportunity cost of not leaning into studies like these, particularly in the global south, well, it's massive, especially when you account for the vast multicultural makeup of countries in our part of the world. And the COVID pandemic has upped the stakes significantly, particularly for some of the world's youngest and apparently hardiest citizens. That's infants born in hospitals at a time when they can't receive as much touch as they perhaps can or should. 
So there have been a lot of studies, I guess, and I've seen them recruiting like COVID babies. I don't want to use a label, but it's true because you're right. The hospital setting is very different. Even nurses can't always touch like healthcare professionals because of COVID safety. You know, they're not always allowed to touch um, children. And that's that's definitely detrimental. Or now I think they're more and more they're trying to allow both parents to come to the hospital when a child is born. But premature cases... It's probably not likely, and then it depends which wave. So definitely, I think um, th- there there is a lot of work looking at that in terms of the long-term effects. But the good news is that we're resilient creatures, so you can make up for it <laughs> in a way. So later on when they go home, I think what's really important is that then have that time, have that skin-to-skin contact, you know, like stroking as much, you know, like it, skin-to-skin is, is a part of it, right? We just may have neglected the stroking aspect of what happens when you have skin-to-skin contact. So I don't think it's 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 um, it's a hopeless case at all because I think afterwards, after they're dismissed or discharged from the hospital, there's a lot of time then to to really spend with your primary caregiver. But then in terms of babies, actually, I don't think that they've experienced during COVID any any kind of um, if you can say repercussions is because they've had their mothers. And if anything, they've had more of their parents, which has been a very good thing. You know, you've been able to work from home, like you know, and 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 for the first year or so. You basically need your parents. You need your primary caregivers. That those are the people. I mean, we know that if other if your parents aren't around, um, if you're adopted, or if they in, in in other cases, of course, other people providing you know contact. We know this through kangaroo care is still important. But for for very young children, I think it's been all right for babies because you know that it. For for a lot of them, they've had you know maternal care or parental care, but then if you look at you know maybe slightly older children that haven't had social experiences with other children, you know it, that might have some kind of deprivation. That would be really interesting to look at. Also, then all of us, so we've maybe had our partners at home or children at home, but friends are important too. You know, like we've missed them. Um, and there has been some some really interesting papers done by my old lab, Cat Lab, that looked at, you know, different kinds of touch. So, you know, um, from social touch, you know, friendship to professional touch. And people didn't miss hugging their colleagues. <laughs> so hopefully that's not going to have any kind of long-term effects. But in terms of social deprivation um, across the life course, in terms of friendships, that's something interesting to think about. But I guess one positive aspect is that, you know, families have been together more. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, in, in, in it depends on your family context. So in some families, of course, not all, that also has led to more, you know, you know more, more contact, more time. And then, of course, increased social and effective touch, too. So I think it'd be interesting. I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be longitudinal studies on this. And that's it for episode one of the Future in the Humanities podcast. Thanks for listening. On the next one, we talk conspiracy theories with a Nigerian scholar who's studying how hearsay amplified by social media can have profound real world implications on everyday people. I think history has shown that conspiracies don't always just emanate from government. Conspiracies can emanate from the audience. Until then, I'm Andy Masugu. Do take care.